is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. A Fox News reporter has been injured while reporting from Ukraine. AP correspondent Norman Hall. U.S. authorities say Fox News reporter Benjamin Hall was injured while reporting outside of Ukraine's capital, Kiev. Hall is a Washington-based correspondent who covers the U.S. State Department for Fox News. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby confirmed the incident during his Monday briefing. We are given to understand that he's being treated right now in a hospital for his injuries. We certainly wish him all the best, a speedy recovery and a safe return. Fox News Media CEO Suzanne Scott says the network has only a minimal level of information. Norman U.S. President Joe Biden's national security advisor has warned a top Chinese official about China's support for Russia in the Ukrainian invasion, even as the Kremlin denies anew that has requested Chinese military equipment. U.S. advisor Jake Sullivan and senior Chinese foreign policy advisor Yang Yichi met in Rome on Monday with the Biden administration increasingly concerned that China is using the war to advance its long-term interests in its competition with the United States. At a news conference, the State Department spokesman Ned Price uh, says that the U.S. is watching closely to see if China is helping Russia. If communicated very clearly to Beijing uh, that we won't stand by, uh, if um, uh, we will not allow any country uh, to compensate Russia uh, for... And officials say that the U.S. has determined that China has signaled to Russia that it would be willing to provide military support as well as financial backing to stave off the impact of severe sanctions. Russian forces kept their up their assault on Ukraine Monday, firing on suburbs around the capital, Kiev, and attacking other cities, even as the two countries held another round of diplomatic talks, which ended without a breakthrough. This is VOA News. The United Nations chief is warning that Russia's war on Ukraine is holding a sword of Damocles over the global economy. He says it is especially hitting poor developing countries, which face skyrocketing food, fuel and fertilizer prices and are now seeing their breadbasket being bombed. Uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres told reporters Monday that Russia and Ukraine represent more than half of the world's supply of sunflower oil and about 30 percent of the world's wheat. He added that grain prices have already exceeded those at the start of the Arab Spring and that food riots of 2007 and 2008. A live evening news program on Russia's state television was interrupted Monday by a person who walked into the studio holding a poster protesting the war in Ukraine. An anchor was speaking during the newscast when a woman appeared on camera behind her holding a sign with the headline, No War, scrawled in English across the top. A message in Russian below calls on people not to believe Russian propaganda. The protester was identified as an employee of the station and spoke out of against the war in a video posted by a group that monitors political arrest. The group said the woman was taken into police custody. China has reported a more than doubling of new COVID-19 cases as it faces by far its biggest outbreak since the early days of the pandemic. The National Health Commission said Tuesday that 3,507 new locally spread cases had been identified within a 24-hour period that is up from 1337 a day earlier. A fast-spreading variant known as Stealth Omicron is testing China's zero-tolerance strategy, which has largely kept the virus at bay after a deadly initial outbreak in early 2020. Most of the new cases were in northeast China's Jilin province, where 2,601 were reported. 
Britain's top uh, court on Monday refused WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's permission to appeal against a decision to extradite him to the U.S. to face spying charges. The court said it refused because the case did not raise an arguable point of law. The 50-year-old Assange has sought for years to avoid a trial in the U.S. on a series of charges related to WikiLeaks' publication of a huge trove of classified documents more than a decade ago. Uh, the uh, case is now expected to be formally sent to British Home Secretary Preeti Patel, who will decide whether to grant the extradition. A British District Court judge had initially rejected the U.S. extradition request on the grounds that Assange was likely to kill himself if he was under harsh U.S. prison conditions. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Tuesday, March 15th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinerofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the U.S. expresses concern over what it calls Russia's expanding targeting of Ukrainian military and civilian facilities. The Pentagon sees it in the context of Russia expanding its targeting of Ukrainian sites to include airfields and other military locations, at least for now. The U.N. warns humanitarian and economic issues are likely to claim more lives in Afghanistan. Bachelet said this was key to finding a pathway out of the country's economic, humanitarian, and human rights crisis. And the stealth Omicron variant fuels China's biggest COVID-19 outbreak in two years. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. The Pentagon is expressing concern at what it calls Russia's expanding targeting of Ukrainian facilities, including military and civilian sites. These, as concerns grow that American troops stationed close to the border may be in harm's way. Thousands of U.S. troops have deployed in the forested mountains of eastern Poland, just a few kilometers from the Ukrainian border, putting them within range and proximity of recent Russian airstrikes and shelling in western Ukraine that recently killed dozens. U.S. officials told Reuters that Russia had asked China for military equipment after its invasion, sparking concern within President Joe Biden's administration, that Beijing might undermine Western efforts to aid Ukraine by helping to strengthen Moscow's military. Russia denies it has asked China for military assistance and says it has sufficient military clout to fulfill all of its aims in Ukraine. For more on the Pentagon's concerns, I spoke with VOA's national security correspondent, Jeff Seldon. A senior defense official earlier said that the base near Poland, near the Polish border that was hit, a training facility run by the Ukrainians at Yaroviv, was hit by more than a couple of dozen cruise missiles fired by Russian airplanes, but from within Russian airspace. When the official was asked why hit that target, the official responded, the Russians clearly are expanding their target set. They must have some reasons. But the official also denied that that base in particular was being used to transfer any weapons, any security assistance to the Ukrainians. And the official also said that no one with the U.S. government, no one on the current payroll of the U.S. government, nobody with the U.S. military currently was at that base. So this is not a, a base that was actively being used, but the Pentagon sees it in the context of, of Russia expanding its targeting of Ukrainian sites to include airfields and other military locations, at least for now, in western Ukraine. A few days ago, Jeff, Russia threatened to fire 
at military equipments and hardware coming into Ukraine from either the U.S. or from neighboring NATO countries. Uh, how is the Pentagon responding to that threat? The immediate aftermath of the threat, Pentagon officials said they had seen no indications that Russia was actively targeting any actual security assistance shipments to Ukraine. Over the past several days, more assistance has flowed in from the U.S. and for other countries. The Pentagon today on Monday said that it is working to make sure that it can get as much aid, as much security assistance to the Ukrainian defense forces as quickly as it can and as nimbly as it can. And officials have expressed confidence that despite the Russian threats, they'll continue to do that. The officials also point out that the types of aid that they've been able to get to the Ukrainian armed forces, whether it's just regular ammunition or whether it's anti-tank missiles, air defense systems, that the Ukrainians have been using it creatively, using it well. And as a result, the Ukrainians have been able to put up enough of a resistance that Russian efforts over the past several days to advance on major cities like Kyiv, Kharkiv, Mariupol, have stalled. While the Russian forces have been able to isolate some cities, the Pentagon says that there's a clear sense that Russian forces are frustrated, that Russian commanders are frustrated, that they have not been able to make more progress. That's VOA's national security correspondent Jeff Selden speaking with me from Washington. It's been two weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine in a conflict that has already killed thousands of people and displaced over two million others. Reports say that President Putin is angry and frustrated at the progress of the war after numerous setbacks faced by his military as it seeks to take over the major cities of Kyiv and Kharkiv. With Ukraine still waiting to become a NATO member, what is the role of the U.S. in defending members of the alliance from this type of aggression? And what have, quote, underdog, unquote, nations such as Ukraine done in the past to fend off advances by larger aggressive powers such as Russia? VOS Jackson Vungani spoke with Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, a military historian and author of a new book, the quote, War That Made the Roman Empire, unquote. Jackson asked him if there are any historical parallels to the current war in Ukraine. The U.S. troops and the U.S. military are playing a huge role in this conflict. I mean, the troops themselves are not in Ukraine. They are in neighboring NATO countries such as Poland. But the United States is furnishing enormous amounts of military equipment to the Ukrainians, also furnishing intelligence and probably military advice as well. And of course, Americans have been training with the Ukrainians for years. This week, congressional leaders reached a deal to provide over $13 billion to help Ukraine and U.S. European allies. In what form is that assistance? Is it cash or is it in arms? Arms are particularly important at at the moment. For instance, things like Javelin missiles, which are anti-tank missiles, Stinger missiles, which are anti-aircraft missiles. They are really being sent to Ukraine in, in absolutely massive numbers and really unprecedented speed. And what more can the U.S. do, especially as Russia puts its nuclear forces on high alert and appears to be willing to attack civilian areas? We just learned that just a few hours ago they were attacking a hospital and some power plants. Well, you know, the U.S. has has decided not to intervene directly with troops or aircraft in the conflict, but we've been leading an international effort of sanctions, really enormous sanctions squeezing the, the Russian economy. Also, NATO, as a result of this, has come alive again. The Germans have announced that they're going to increase their military budget, really going to double their military budget, which is not something the Russians wanted to hear. I think the U.S., you know, is also playing a very important role in advising the Ukrainians. And 
I would imagine behind the scenes in diplomacy to look for an off ramp from this from this conflict. But but ultimately, the military actions on the ground are going to be the most important thing. And how do you see this conflict ending? Ukraine is obviously an underdog in this fight. How does it or other smaller nations in Eastern Europe worried about similar attacks from Russia fend off a much more powerful adversary like Russia? Yeah, well, they should be worried about it. It is This is an act of aggression, and the Russian attack on Ukraine sets a precedent that threatens all of Russia's neighbors and the other countries in Eastern Europe. So a couple of things have to happen. First of all, an end has to be negotiated to the war, and the Russians have to withdraw from the parts of Ukrainian territory that they have attacked in 2022. It may be too much to hope that they will withdraw from the Crimea and from the eastern parts of Ukraine that they had already occupied. Secondly, they have to do something to help reconstruct Ukraine. And third, the NATO countries have to really continue to draw together. Uh, and the United States has to continue to be committed. I think that this is going to mean an increase in American military spending, unfortunately. It's going, certainly going to mean an increase in military spending on the part of other countries. And as much as possible, it's going to be mean looking looking for other means of securing energy supplies than from Russia. Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, a best-selling author and military historian, speaking with my colleague Jackson Vungani from New York. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz welcomed talks between Ukrainian and Russian officials and other diplomatic activities aimed at either ending the war or securing a ceasefire. This as Washington wraps up efforts in coordination with the West to push for the end of the war or secure a ceasefire and a safe corridor to provide assistance and to evacuate civilians. Top advisors to President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping met in Rome Monday to discuss China's reported support for Russia and its invasion of Ukraine, even as the Kremlin denies reports that it has requested Chinese military equipment to use in the war. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Senior Chinese Foreign Policy Advisor Yang Jiechi met Monday in a renewed effort to ensure that Beijing is not helping Moscow evade biting Western sanctions. For more, I spoke with VOA's White House correspondent Anita Powell. In this battle over Ukraine's future was a very unassuming hotel in the Italian capital. And that's where U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with a very high-level official from China's government to talk about... China's role in this conflict. Uh, they, these two officials met for seven hours in what the White House described as a, quote, intense meeting. But our understanding is that they were talking about the U.S.'s concerns that China is giving material or military aid to Russia to allow them to continue on this invasion of Ukraine. And that is the understanding we were given by the White House, that this was the subject of the discussion. And they, they gave us very few other details about what they would do if China were to cross any of these lines, violate their wishes or violate the sanctions. But this is a very serious point that the U.S. is trying to tackle in order to kind of cut off the supply line, essentially, of Vladimir Putin's war machine. So this is an important step. Otherwise, diplomatically, rather, we had Russian and Ukrainian officials meet for a fourth time. They met virtually. And it seems like these two sides are still diametrically opposed. Russia would like to hold on to some of the territorial gains. Ukraine does not want that to happen. They say, we will not surrender, we will not give an inch. So, so far, this seems like we are at something of an impasse. This war has reverberated all over the world, ripple effect everywhere. How is this war affecting the African continent? There are two 
ways that, that have recently come to our attention about how this conflict in Ukraine is reverberating all the way to Africa, possibly more. But one thing is that the head of the IMF last week noted that the conflict in Ukraine is really cutting off a lot of investment and a lot of attention on the African continent. It's going to hurt the tourism sectors, rather, it's going to hurt manufacturing, it's going to hurt travel, and it's going to have a negative effect on the African continent. The second thing that's kind of interesting is that South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, said also last week, I think it was on Friday, that he had been asked to serve as a mediator between Ukraine and Russia. Remember, South Africa has had a relationship with both of these countries and is kind of seen as I guess somewhere in the middle or somewhere neutral. What's intriguing about this possibility, and this is something I did ask White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about, is South Africa's version of mediation is more of the AU African style, which focuses, I think we could say, more on restorative justice, on truth, reconciliation, and kind of this notion of talking it out and having the victim and the accuser kind of hash it out and say, you know, we've talked this out, but there's not going to be any sort of like punitive justice in a way that the victim really wants, we're just going to have to move on with our lives. That's an intriguing possibility in a war that where the sides are just so dug in and so opposed to each other and so passionate. And that's an intriguing idea that we could, that that's a possibility. And I think that's another sign of what the African continent, through all of its troubles, through all of its struggles, has learned about human nature, about conflict. And I think South Africa's president definitely believes that he has a role to play here. That's VOA's White House correspondent Anita Powell speaking with me from the White House. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet warns humanitarian and economic issues are likely to claim more lives in Afghanistan than conflict. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Butchlad recently made a one-day trip to the Afghan capital, Kabul, where she conveyed this message to the Taliban rulers. While there, she stressed the importance of respecting the human rights of all people. Butchlad said this was key to finding a pathway out of the country's economic, humanitarian and human rights crisis. The High Commissioner spokeswoman Liz Throssell tells VOA Bachelet emphasized the importance of inclusivity in navigating the way out of the multiple crises facing Afghanistan. Throssell says the High Commissioner told the Taliban authorities the societies that are more sustainable and peaceful are those that consider their people as part of the solution rather than as antagonists to be suppressed. The High Commissioner stressed that um, it's crucial to urgently address um, what have really and, and rightly been described as, as the catastrophic effects of, of the economic sanctions and asset freezes. And um, even though there's been a, a decline in hostilities, um, the, the, the multiple humanitarian and economic crises um, in Afghanistan may in fact uh, claim far more lives than actual conflict. The United Nations reports 22 million people, more than half of Afghanistan's population, need humanitarian assistance. It says one in three people faces acute hunger, two million children are malnourished, and more than three and a half million people are internally displaced. Aid agencies report women and girls are are particularly vulnerable and face protection risks. Throssel says the High Commissioner met a range of people who were able to voice their concerns. She says Butchlet met women who spoke about their struggles against injustice in the country. They expressed their need to regain the rights they had achieved over the past two decades before the Taliban retook the country last August. They needed their rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly, uh, to 
to be free uh, from the fear of reprisals, um, to be able to engage in politics, to be able to train um, as healthcare workers, and of course, um, to be able to have an education. The new Taliban rulers say they hope to be able to open all schools for girls later this month. When the group was last in power in the late 1990s, girls were banned from attending schools and women from leaving home unless accompanied by a close male relative. At the end of her visit, the High Commissioner urged the international community to ease sanctions and unfreeze assets. She said this crucially would help to jumpstart the Afghan economy and relieve the suffering of millions of people. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, the so-called, quote, stealth Omicron, quote, variant is fueling China's biggest COVID-19 outbreak in two years, with 1,337 local cases tallied across the mainland. The majority are in the far northeastern Jilin province, which effectively banned personal movement throughout the province starting Monday. In Shanghai, authorities are locking down the individual buildings rather than the whole city, but cases are rising. Numbers in mainland China are still low relative to Europe, the U.S., or even the city of Hong Kong. Until now, China has seen very few infections since its strict Wuhan lockdown two years ago. The government is maintaining its zero-tolerance strategy to stop the virus quickly, with lockdowns and mandatory quarantines for close contacts. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voanews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. The UN Refugee Agency reports drought in Somalia is causing a humanitarian and displacement crisis. The UNHCR says thousands of people are fleeing their parched lands in search of fertile territory and humanitarian assistance to help them survive. Again, Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. In Somalia, experts say climate change is kicking in with a vengeance. For the past three years, the rains have largely failed to come, decimating crops and livestock. The UN Refugee Agency reports tens of thousands of people have fled their homes in search of pasture for their cattle and food, shelter and safe drinking water. The UNHCR estimates about half a million people this year alone are likely to be displaced by the end of March. The majority reportedly are children, the elderly, pregnant, and lactating mothers. UNHCR spokesman Boris Cherchikov says most arrive in urban centers or existing settlements for displaced people only to find difficult living conditions. Additionally, he says the hoped-for aid is in short supply, forcing them to resort to extreme measures to survive. This, he says, exposes them to exploitation and multiple dangers. Children have dropped out of school to help their families earn a daily income and to search for water and pasture. This has made them particularly vulnerable to risks such as forced marriage, family separation, and sexual violence and abuse. Women and girls who make up half of the displaced population are at heightened risk. Meteorologists forecast a good rainy season in the Horn of Africa. And as of now, spokesman for the World Food Program, Thompson Ferry, says no area is reported as being either in a state of famine or on the verge of famine. However, hunger and malnutrition is worsening across all drought-affected areas. One rainy season may not be enough to wash away three 
uh, consecutive failed seasons. And if immediate humanitarian support isn't received, this could rapidly change and millions of families could find themselves facing starvation. Aid agencies are facing the specter of the 2011 famine in Somalia, which killed more than a quarter of a million people, half of them children. The UNHCR has appealed for $157.5 million to deliver critical aid and protection to nearly 3 million internally displaced people in Somalia and tens of thousands of refugees and asylum seekers. So far, only 5% of that amount has been received. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Aid groups say Eritrean refugees in Ethiopia are facing increased attacks and growing hunger as humanitarian access to displaced persons' camps remains limited. The aid groups are calling on Ethiopian authorities to protect refugees and allow much-needed assistance into besieged areas of the country. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's African News Center in Nairobi. Eritrean refugees living in Ethiopia continue to face hunger and attacks as fighting in the country's northern areas continues. According to refugees who spoke to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, Orcha, unidentified men attacked the Barahle camp last month, killing five people. Faith Kasina is the UN Refugee Agency spokesperson for Eastern Africa, the Horn of Africa and the Great Lakes region. She says Eritrean refugees are fleeing conflict areas to safer areas. The conflict has also reached some of those refugee camps in those three regions, you know, where we have seen um, refugees being displaced or forced to flee yet again. Others have been wounded and some have also been killed. And so the situation continues to be extremely worrying for refugees, particularly because a lot of them have to deal with the reality of being forced to flee yet again. Ethiopia hosts at least 140,000 Eritreans who fled persecution and other abuses in their country. Most of the refugees are sheltered in the Tigray region, scene of the heaviest fighting between Ethiopia's government forces and the Tigray Liberation People's Front rebel group. Others have moved south to the Afar and Amhara regions, where the TPLF is battling pro-government militias. Humanitarian agencies have had difficulty accessing the populations in need because of roadblocks and insecurity. The UN Humanitarian Office says it was recently able to distribute 100 metric tons of healthcare and nutrition supplies to Tigray. The aid helped about 10,000 people and at least 22,000 refugees. Another 190,000 receive assistance in Afar and Amhara. Kasina of the UN Refugee Agency says more people are left without shelter. With the deterioration of the security situation and the ongoing conflict, you know, many people, including refugees, are likely to be further displaced, to flee their homes or where they're living in settlements in urban areas to other areas that are relatively safer um, in search of assistance, in search of security. Amnesty International Horn of Africa researcher Fiseha Tekle says some Eritrean refugees are leaving Ethiopia altogether. The number of Eritreans are leaving to other countries, especially through the Kenya border towards Uganda, most of them. And while in route, they were arrested by police officials at the at the border or after crossing the border and many of the times they are uh, taken to court and uh, fined for money or with a 
with uh, arrest, especially in Kenya. So some of them, they were able to make it to Uganda. The UN humanitarian agency says its operations in the north of the country continue to be restricted at a time when about 870,000 people need its assistance each week. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. This is Science in a Minute. Refineries started to add lead to gasoline in 1923 to help car engines run more efficiently and improve their performance. The U.S. Energy Information Administration says that by the 1970s, health and environmental concerns prompted regulators to phase out lead from gasoline, beginning the era of lead-free gas. A new study suggests that exposure during childhood to exhaust from vehicles using leaded fuel since the 1940s caused the IQ scores of some 170 million living Americans to drop by a collective 824 million points. According to a press release, researchers from Florida State University and Duke University also found that Americans who were born before 1996 may also have an increased risk for lead-related health issues like a faster aging brain. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chino in washington wishing you a wonderful day